0: And welcome to the Scripts and Scribes podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Fuganaga. Whether you're listening to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or watching us on YouTube, if you want more great chats with top industry professionals, be sure to check out our over 200 interviews on ScriptsAndScribes.com or YouTube.com slash Scribes. And if you enjoy the show, please leave us a like, a five-star rating, or a nice comment. We really do appreciate it. And for the extended conversation with our guest today, or with any of our guests, be sure to check out our the after show uh, on Patreon. That's Patreon.com/slash Scripts and Scribes. Uh, and today on the show, I'm very happy to have on a first-time guest that we're going to welcome to the show. He's a screenwriter and producer whose credits include American History X, SWAT, Blow, and Get Carter. He's also been a film professor at Columbia University and Barnard College, and his new film, Embattled, starring Stephen Dorff, which looks amazing, uh, and which the LA Times called smart and heartfelt, and an exciting, scrappy brawler of a film— called Embattled. It opened in theaters on November 20th in limited release and on digital and VOD. Uh, he is David McKenna. Welcome to the podcast, David. Kevin, it's great to be here, buddy. Thank you. No, thank you for coming on. I'm so thrilled to have you. Um, how have you been during the quarantine? I know you've got three kids at home and you're working and I'm sure it's a it's a madhouse. <laughs> so you got a film that just came out. So uh, what's life like been for you in quarantine so far?
1: Um, well, I, uh, you know, it's been a struggle just like with everybody else, but I mean, there's positives to having three kids at home, uh, and a wife and a dog, and then there's negatives. Uh, one is, is you don't get lonely. That's a positive, but then you don't really have a whole lot of privacy, but, uh, it's been great. You know, we moved closer to the water, um, last summer, uh, two summers ago and so uh you know i still get to you know i can go outside as opposed to being in la or new york and just you know being in essentially a dungeon um you know <laughs> i mean i was up i was up in la recently and it was not pretty and um and so that's that's been a benefit of it but it, it just sucks it really does it's 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 awful the you know my i have kids in high school i have one in college and and uh you know they're you know they've lost a year we've all lost kind of a year of our lives you know but it is what it is everybody's in the same you know mess just deal with it
0: mhm how about uh, you uh yeah i mean the same it's like it's a lost year almost it's like the yeah. year sort of flew by And nothing was real, not much was accomplished in terms of, you know, a lot of the things that you do birthdays and holidays and, you know, just summer vacation and work. And I mean, it all just sort of blends together into this just long drawn out not much. So, um, so yeah, I'm I'm right there with you. Uh, I agree. What area do you live in now?
1: I live on Babo Island in Newport Beach. So I live on an island. It's very cool. It's a great spot. I'm close to the water. Um I I love the paddleboard. It's a great workout. Um and uh uh you know, it's it's great. I mean, I I moved down to Newport Beach from LA uh about 20 years ago. Um I liked LA, but I didn't want to raise my kids there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh you know, I just trek up whenever I need to trek up. Not anymore. Now everything's done by Zoom. But, uh, uh, you know, I I love L.A. L.A., I'll I'll always have a special place in my heart with L.A., but uh, um, I don't like it right now. (laughs) Right.
0: And for those people who are watching or listening who uh, aren't familiar with Los Angeles, Newport Beach is in Orange County, which is just south of L.A. So you're just outside of L.A., but I'm sure with traffic it can be difficult sometimes.
1: (laughs) about an hour away.
0: About an hour, yeah. Yeah. so what, uh, what have you, we're asking everybody during the quarantine, one or some of the things that you have done during the quarantine that has been sort of, uh, you know, a learning experience, like people learn to bake bread or, uh, I guess with, with three kids, you probably learned to meditation or sanity or try to keep your sanity, little tricks like that. Uh, what have you done during the quarantine specifically other than work? Or um
1: I love to cook. Mm-hmm. Uh cooking is just a great uh it's a you know, it's an excuse not to write, uh to get away from it. So um and going to restaurants, sitting in parking lots and having dinner is pointless to me. So why not <laughs> go to the <laughs> go to the store, make a good dinner? Um uh, we play we play lots of games. Last night we played Taboo. Hmm. Um, so it's really good bonding with my kids, um, and, uh, and to cook and, uh, you know, I'm, I am like a house, you, I really am a housewife right now. I, I do lots of laundry. Um, I love watching football. Um, I'm trying to get caught up in all the movies. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, just the, the same old stuff that everybody else is doing. Um, what do I like to do? Luckily, I have a body of water right outside my house. And so, like I said, I love to paddleboard and, uh, and, uh, and go on bike rides and, and, you know, take long walks. You know, just the same old stuff that everybody's been doing. OC is a little bit more lenient on the, on the laws as far as, uh, uh, compared to LA. So that's been nice.
0: Right. Um, right.
1: You have lo- I have lots of people from LA calling me, you know, Hey, you know, we're coming down or whatever. And so, um, you know, it's, it's been, it's been fine, but I, you know, I just miss uh, going to a bar and hanging out with people and not having to wear, worry about a face mask and, and uh, just living our lives, taking a vacation, you know?
0: Right. Right. I mean, you can't
1: even take a vacation right now. It's ridiculous. So,
0: right. Hopefully, you can't even take a vacation.
1: Just give me the shot, baby. Yeah. I'll take the shot. Right.
0: Right. Load yeah. me up. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, as a first-time guest, we always start with uh, your background, where you're from, uh, and how you sort of first became enamored. And passionate about film and television. So maybe give us a little bit about your background, where you're from, and and where you studied, and 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 how you got involved in in film and television.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, well, I was born down in San Diego, and then my my mom and my dad got divorced, and I'm a I'm an only child from a single mom. I never really spent any time with my dad, um, and um, I Same. think that I think that added a lot to becoming a writer. I think that my mom worked all the time. So I was this latchkey kid. And so I really had an active imagination. Um, and then after graduating and I was always a pretty good writer. Um, but then when I went to school, after graduating high school, I went to San Diego state and I was a business major and I just hated it. I didn't understand it. Um, it was not for me. Um, and then, uh, a friend of mine, uh who uh um, at san diego state was wrongly accused of a rape oh and the woman dro- dropped charges like two days later but by then his name was completely destroyed and his reputation was destroyed and at the time the accused was out i think or maybe the accused was out a couple of years before with jody foster mm-hmm. and i wanted to write a play uh, called the male perspective about what it's like, f- and just show the male the whole time of what it's like to be accused of a rape. And I didn't know what I was doing. I just I wrote. I literally I go. Somebody said I said how long's a screenplay? Thinking it was a play. Uh-huh. They wrote. They said they said 120 pages. And so I wrote a 120 page play. Wow. Called the male perspective while I was I think I was 19 or 20 years old, um, and. I just, and, and then, and then somebody said, no, screenplay movies. And I go, okay, what's a screenplay? And I went to the San Diego State bookstore and I saw Sid Field's book, Screenplay. Mm-hmm. And hello. Yep. Okay. And I name. read that. I read that. And I just, I, I mean, that's when I knew I wanted to be a screenwriter. I'd read that. I'd read that book and it really spoke to me. Um, I loved movies, but I didn't really understand how they came about, you know. Oh, like you you go you go to the movies, you go see Platoon, you know, and it's 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 this great movie. Oh, somebody actually wrote that, you know, I mean so um they didn't just turn on a camera. Um and so uh I just started really writing screenplays while I was a business major. I was already upper division in business, so I couldn't change majors. Um I got a journalism minor thinking that that would somehow help my writing which it did. Um and uh by the time I graduated college I had a major a minor and I had three screenplays under my belt. And I moved up I I basically said I want to be a screenwriter. I moved up to LA. I didn't know one person. I lived in a room th- of this guy's house and uh i you know I didn't know anybody, and thankfully he was nice and he invited me out to places out to go out to uh out with uh in um in l a and just over the next four years, i worked you know i was a waiter at a great restaurant in pantola in santa monica and i just i would write all day and then I'd wait tables that night if you want to be a a writer and work hard you know, you can't like work a day job. You have to, because you don't get enough time on the computer. And so I could go from five o'clock to 10 o'clock and make mm-hmm. enough money to support myself while I wrote screenplays. And uh, there was, I was waiting tables one night on a guy named uh, uh, Nick Grillo, who used to work for Neufeld Revenue, um who did all the Tom Clancy, uh, Hunt for Red October movies. Mm-hmm. And they had a deal at Paramount and, Somehow I found out his name was Nick Grillo and I found out that Nick, uh, worked for them. And I go, well, Nick, you know, I'm a screenwriter. <laughs> and of course his eyes rolled, you know, geez, here it go. I'm going to get hit up again. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, I go, Nick, how about this? I go, Nick, give me two weeks. Let me polish up a couple scripts, uh, you come back in, I'll buy you dinner, I'll buy you a glass of red wine. He used to drink, he was an old school Italian, so he drank red wine out of a drink glass. Oh, wow. And, um, and he goes, fine, David, no problem. And then I touched on my scripts, I called him, and, uh uh and I was expecting, you know, I, I, we made the exchange, I bought him dinner, he took two screenplays from me, and, and uh, I was expecting to hear back from him, you know, maybe give him a couple weeks a week and a half, a couple weeks and then called back. He called me the next day and he goes, David, you're a pretty fucking good writer, man. And I go, thank you, Nick. And he goes, I'm going to give these, uh, two, two screenplays to a friend of mine. He works at Metropolitan Agency. And I go, oh my God, Nick, thank you so much. Uh, a guy named Paul Kelmanson, Paul read them and, uh, called me in. I met with Paul and boom, just like that, had an agent. Wow. That, yeah, that doesn't
0: happen very often.
1: Yeah. You know, it was, it was, it was really great. And, uh, and, um, you know, so I was, I don't know, I was 24, 25 years old and I had three screenplays. He tried to sell those screenplays, but he didn't, he couldn't sell them. And then I, around that time, I started writing American History X. And so American History X was basically the fourth script that I had written, first one sold. So that's kind of the long and short of it. I don't know if it was too long, but. No, no. no. And
0: and, and your story is that rare occurrence where hitting up uh, a restaurant patron that your restaurant you're working at to read your script, to hopefully like your script, to pass it on to an agent, to the agent liking the script enough to sign you. That's the reason that, that young writers think that, oh, I'm going to carry my script around and hand it or email it to. Nowadays, it's email. Uh, get yes. it to anybody that I see because that's the way you break in. Which, as we all know, that's it's not necessarily very common. In fact, it's very rare for something like that to happen. So, but but well, your story I mean, is like one of the reasons that 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 the myth that oh yeah somebody read my script and I all of a sudden you know like with Matthew McConaughey discovered at a shopping mall you know in Texas. Yeah. Um, and all of a sudden, became a big actor. It doesn't, yeah. it doesn't really happen that way.
1: No, I mean, but that is that is kind of the essence of the story. Is it show business, and you have to be, you have to go out and get these people to read you, and you right. have to be, you have to be assertive. You can't just sit back and rest on your talents. You have to be. It's that's why right, it's show business. Mm-hmm. You've got to be good at the business side of it as well. And, um, I forget what I was going to say. There was something else, but, you know, and, and I mean, that is, the oh, back then, Kevin, we Mm -hmm. had to go to Kinko's, print them up, print the scripts up and give hard copies and send out hard copies, you know, so you're spending half of your money, uh, um, uh, just literally making copies of your script. Right. And, and, you're going and back then we had, you had to pay for seminars um, this is <laughs> I don't want to age myself too much but you know you'd literally go to a hotel conference room nowadays you get everything online but back then you had to go to these big giant conference rooms i, I remember dropping 400 bucks which was everything to me to go listen to bob kosberg talk about how to pitch your movie Hmm. You know, I, I think so,
0: they st- nowadays in COVID, they, everything's online. But I know that they still yeah. have some of those virtual pitch fests, or even like in person pitch fests. That so I think they still do a lot of that stuff. Good. Um. You know. So well, it's, it's
1: the pitch is kind of dead, though. I mean, um, as far as from the movie perspective side, I mean, pitches are are really just have stopped. Mm-hmm. Well, the whole business has stopped right. during COVID. <laughs> but but you know, pitches are are, you know people want to read the script. Right. You
0: know, you got to. Yeah. yeah. And I wanted right. to mention that you had talked to, you'd mentioned that um, being getting out there, getting people to read you, which is incredibly important, but I want to touch on something else. You had three scripts already. And so that's another thing that I think newer writers need to, to prepare for. You need to be ready. Like when there's an opportunity, when someone says, okay, sure, I'll read your script. You need to have a script. You, and it needs to be good. And you need to have, ideally more than one script uh you can't say oh yeah well i'm just i'm working on my thing now so i'll get back to you in 6 months when it's done or you know just finish slap it together just to get it to somebody just because they're willing to read you have to sort of be ready so that's another thing is is keep writing get your material out in as good a shape as you can so that when an opportunity does come it's not like oh yeah i've been meaning to write this thing i have a great idea i'm going to pitch it to this you know executive or producer or whatever but i haven't actually written it yet i know a lot of newer writers starting off are in that boat get something written especially now in quarantine when you have more time it's you know it's it's if it was
1: easy everybody would do it kevin right you know right. What i mean it's hard to attack the blank page you've got yeah. to have something to say you've got to have a work ethic i mean this is why i mean i'm looking at myself right now i look like shit and that's because i woke up at 4:15 this morning because i'm working on this new script and so yeah. it's just Um, uh, you know, you have to be able to, there's too much, the world is your competition now. The world is your competition. You know, it's, it's easy to email a script from Holland. And, um, and so how are you going to be better? How are you going to, you know, sell your script in this marketplace where they're only buying a certain amount of scripts? The studios are hardly make buying anything new. How are you going to make a living? Mm-hmm. and uh, it's all about it's all about hard work. You know, the talent is, you know, obviously the talent has to be there, but if you're not willing to write a script and get up early and kick butt, then get out now while right. you can. Right. I mean, that's, that's the long and short of it.
0: Mm-hmm. I wanted to talk to you a lot about uh, your writing process and things like that, but before we jump into that stuff, uh, let's talk about uh, your new film, Embattled, uh, starring Stephen Dorff, uh, it reminded me a little of this Connor McGregor, although I know, uh, uh he, he plays a character that's uh, from Alabama. Yeah. Um, but it gave me some warrior vibes. It looks really, really cool. So can you tell us a little bit about Embattled, what the story's about, and, uh, you know, how it came to be?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm a big Robert Duvall fan, and I've, You know, I've always been – a big movie for me when I was a kid was The Great Santini. And so I was always looking forward to doing this really epic sort of father-son story. I just didn't have the right idea. And then this MMA idea came across, and where a father fights a son, and I thought, okay, well, what's the ultimate father-son movie? The ultimate father-son movie is where the two fight each other in an MMA fight. I mean, does it get any bigger than that? You know, no. Okay, well, how do you sell it? Okay, that's the hard part. You know, people might roll their eyes at that notion. Well, you know, that's my job as a screenwriter to make it as believable as possible. Um, I uh, I have one of my son, my middle son uh, has a, a genetic disorder called Williams syndrome. So I thought that uh, to add um, uh, one element to the father-son is to give – Our main, our older son Jet, who's basically the moral center of the story, to give him a little brother with special needs to make things a little bit more difficult on him because now he's got to deal not only with his father who is out of control. Conor McGregor meets Chuck Liddell, um, but he also has a little brother to deal with. He has to deal with school. He has to deal with financial issues with his mother. You know, so I want to make things. It's always good to make. as things difficult as possible on your protagonist. Mm-hmm. You can never lose out on that. And, uh and so taking that template right there, you know, that's, that's a good foundation right there for, for a movie. And, um you know, it just, it, it turned out to be uh something that, you know, it just turned out to be something I think really, really special. I'm very proud of it. Um, I'm very proud that I got a chance to, to work with my son, who's the third male lead in the movie. He ended up getting, he ended up reading and getting the part. I didn't necessarily write it for him. Um, but yeah, you know, I mean, uh, Stephen Dorf and Darren Mann are, uh, you know, two fantastic actors. They really, they really brought the piece to life. And uh, Nick Sarkisoff, our director, he, he hadn't done much. He did a, he, he's, he's Georgian, Georgia. By Russia, right, right, right. And uh, he he'd done a movie called Krasny, which he did some really interesting things there. And uh, but with this, he really just sort of, in my opinion, knocked it out of the park for for relatively first time director. He did a really fantastic job. I've had my issues with directors, certainly in the past. Um, and with Nick, it was, it was probably the best experience I've had, you know, as far as being a writer and just being involved, you know, from point A to point Z, you know, with this, with this process, but it's been, it was a great, it was a great experience.
0: Um, so in terms of working with a director as a writer, cause you've been a writer, you've been a writer producer. Uh, what was the process like on Embattled, where the writer is actually a little bit more active because I know sometimes a writer gets rewritten and sometimes a writer, you know, I, yeah. is replaced on a show or not allowed on set because the director is, you know, much more controlling. But yeah. on a film like Embattled, where you are much more involved, can you walk us through that sort of process? you talked a little bit about the conception, but, you know, through the pre-production, production, and, and release phases, you your, well, your this is a
1: funny story because mm-hmm. um, you know I was meeting with the producers on it and um, and there was this big guy in the room and you know and I was just getting notes after the first draft of embalmed, and um, I thought this guy was you know just a PA I thought he was just some sort of development executive but whenever I'm in a room I always and this is a good tip for writers. I always include everybody. Um, it's important. You never know uh, where a good idea is going to come from. I always ask opinions from everybody, from the highest person to the lowest person. Um, I've always learned in life to always include people and uh, and anybody. Everybody that wants works in the entertainment business should read How to Win Friends and Influence People. Mm. Um, but uh, I turned to this guy and I said, I was getting all the notes from from the ladies, great notes. And I turned to this guy and I said, Well, what do you think? And he basically in his, in his Georgian accent said, uh, uh, I think it. I think the script is terrific. And, uh, he gave me a few more notes and he gave me a few more ideas and I get in the car and I drive back from LA to Newport Beach. And one of the ladies, one of the female producers calls me and says, David, great job. And I go, what? And and he goes, that guy's Nick Sarkisoff. Um, and he wants to direct our movie and he wants to finance it uh all the money uh by themselves. We don't have to you know pre-sell foreign rights and all of that. And uh essentially, you know, Nick uh, uh you know took we took the movie together and we just ran with it and uh he was willing to cast Steven. He was willing to cast wow uh you know go out on a limb you know for a $10 million movie. It's you know Steven is a fantastic actor but it's hard to get financing for $10 million with Steven and, um, and, uh, you know, we just casted it the way we wanted to. And, uh, Nick, uh, um, they, Nick casted my son. My son came in to read. When I wrote the script, my son Colin was in seventh grade. And then by the time I was formed to read for it, he was in ninth grade. So mm. he was perfect for the part. And, uh, and so what happened was is my wife and my son Colin moved. To Birmingham, Alabama for six weeks to go shoot the movie. I was only on set a little bit. I don't like mm-hmm. being on set. Um I, I mean, it's, it's, if you're a writer, it's really boring. And <laughs> you sit around, you wait, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, what have, how, what did Sorkin say, you know, uh, uh, the old adage, you know, uh, a writer on a movie set is like a hooker hanging around in the morning, you know. <laughs> 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 wanting breakfast. Right, um, right, right. and uh and so uh you know, I might want to direct at some point, you know. you know, when you're a director on set, it's not boring because you're constantly making decision after decision after mm-hmm. decision. But uh um I mean, that's kind of the inception of the story with Nick, you know, and, uh, uh, he was great. He was very inclusive and he, oh, we you know when I was on set, which is, I was probably on set for maybe a week, I, I had to fly back and forth because I, my two, other two kids were back here. Oh, and yeah. so, um, you know he just, he was always including, always asked what I thought. I, I'd give him my opinion and, uh, you know, but it's, it's his movie and his decision making. And, you know, he, he did a really, really good job of taking what I wrote and the actors did a, a really good job of interpreting the characters. And, uh, you know, I mean, I'm, I was very proud of the script and I'm very proud of the movie. And so whenever you have those two interlinked, uh, you know, everybody did their job correctly.
0: Right. And it's not always the case. So that's, uh, that's fantastic when you have something that you're so proud of and it works out sort of in the way you would hope that it would work out. Cause you know, in the business, it doesn't, that's not, yeah. <laughs> that's not always the case. Um, no,
1: I've had lots of, I've had lots of bad movies, you know, and I've had seven, eight movies or whatever it is. And half of them have been good and half of them, a couple of them have been okay. And a couple of them have been really bad, you know? Um, And I don't, and I don't necessarily think, I think that's just, there's just some miscommunication that takes place from when you hand the script off, you know, to the director, to the editor, to the actors or whatever. And it just kind of, you know, and I don't mean, let me stick up for the writers a little bit. Mm -hmm. It's very rare that financiers green light a bad script, you know, so something else, so something else is happening along the way. And, uh, and, so that's the problem, I think. I think that's the problem.
0: We had a, a conversation in our last podcast. It was uh, for Thanksgiving. It was sort of this group panel discussion uh, with some writers and some lit managers and um, some aspiring writers all together. And one of the things that, that was brought up was Twitter and just in terms of social media and public forums and bashing films uh, in a public way not just for political reasons of how that's bad because you may be want to work with some of these people in the future, but also for a creative reason because and this is a manager producer who brought this up that you don't know what went into making that film. Like you said, producers don't often buy scripts that are bad. And so somewhere along that process, whether it's they brought in a new writer or the director started to write things or they couldn't shoot based on budget for this or that, or something happened in production or in the editing process, something changed or someone, an actor was cast who wasn't right based on name that. Any, no, a million things could happen between when you, the writer, are sitting at your computer typing and press, you know, print on your draft and that goes out. And when the film is actually, the lights go down and the film is projected on a screen, there are a, literally a million decisions between those two things that can affect the outcome of the film. And so, oftentimes, when a film is bad, it's not necessarily solely on the writer. You may not even, as the the original writer, if you're rewritten, and if they're not rewritten by more than what is it, fifty percent, according to WGA, some of those writers don't even get credit. So the the movie may not be bad, and it's not. It's like that's not mostly your script anymore. And so, when you're bad badmouthing <laughs> a film, keep that in mind.
1: Let's take Get Carter for example. Okay, you know? yeah, I'd love to. Because it's a, you know it's it's one of my worst movies probably. Um, I, I I liked
0: Get Carter. I mean, you know, well, American History X. It wasn't, but you know what I mean.
1: Yeah. Um. So I mean, I, you know, I was extremely proud of that script.
0: Hmm. And um, yeah, that's true. I hadn't seen the di- like I hadn't read an original script for it before I saw it. I was it, but... I was
1: really happy with the second draft. Wow. Um. And, um, and you know, Mark Canton, the producer, gave it to Sylvester Stallone. And I go, okay, I didn't think that was he was necessarily the right mm. casting part for it, but you know, I mean, Sylvester Stallone is an icon, and you know, sure. I went with it. And and Mark Canton at the time wanted to do for Sly what Tarantino had done for Travolta with Pulp Fiction, right? And so, um, you know, I went with it a little bit, um, then. You know, and I have the script, and then we get a director on board. I'm not going to say his name, but, you know, I mean, the director literally, you know, rewrote the script behind my back, uh.
0: violated
1: WGA rules. Um, Sylvester, th- we're getting ready to shoot. The money comes forward. Sylvester calls me, David, get back in here. You know, you are going to help me fix this, you know. And I go back, and I try and fix it. Uh, the director doesn't want any part of it. And, uh, you know, and then the, the whole movie, you know, the direct when the director t- takes over, he makes his own thing. And to me, you know, it's like what it is. It's 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 an it's like an it's like a builder taking a design an architect has, you know, and at the last minute deciding to move a bathroom across the hall and moving this bedroom over here and doing this upstairs. You right. know, you don't when you have a screenplay, you have to shoot the screenplay. You know, you can't mess around with it. You can't, you know, it, it, it ha- you know, everybody agrees on it. And sometimes these things just run away from you. It, it, right. And, and, and th- that's what happened with Git Carter. And, uh, and then, and then at the end, I'm fighting for credit because I want the money, you know. <laughs> I want sure. Yeah. Ticket, you know? So here you are. You're fighting for something that. You don't necessarily agree with, and some of it, a lot of it's not what you intentionally wrote. And so, um, it's just this catch 22 all over again. And, um, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't think I could be any more, um, clear about the whole, cause my father in law is an architect. Mm. And it's, it's so akin to you know, a screenplay is, Design a house and the builder is the director, you know, and you just need to stick to it. If you change stuff at the last minute while you're on set or while you're shooting or just before, you know, and it affects everything because then the actors will get lost. And then, then, you know, and it's just one thing after another where, you know, you, and if you change the slightest little thing, you know, it just, it turns out, it turns into you're making a, a mountain out of a molehill and right. It's, it, it's, and it's tough. It's tough right. to recover from.
0: It really well, is. It's funny because you had mentioned Quentin Tarantino and the the thing is Quentin can do that because he is the writer and the director. It's, yes. it's, he's not one or the other. Yes. So in other words, he's changing his own blueprints and that's different than the builder yeah, totally. going and adding rooms to the second floor that didn't belong there first. And, you know, yes. things like that. So. You know, so I, it's
1: i mean you, when you're tarantino, you could do whatever you want sure. you know I mean the guy is one of the greatest you know filmmakers ever um and uh uh you know, but when you're you know a guy that doesn't have a whole lot of credits, you know stick to the script right you know stick with everything you know you know you signed on for a reason uh and uh there's a vision there and and, uh, and, you know, make sure that you have it solidified and everything's fine. Now I'm sure he will not, he won't say the same thing and that this is the movie that he didn't, that he wanted to make, you know, but you know, it's a very collaborative pop process. And once you go off on your own, you know, you, you better deliver.
0: Right. Well, what is the saying? Success has many fathers or mothers or mother, parents, but, uh, failure is an orphan. There, there you go. Right you know, there. Something like yep. that. Yep. Well. Luckily,
1: uh, luckily, I survived it. You know, it, oh, it yeah. happened. You know, it's a great, it's a, you know, it's a great learning experience, and uh, you just got to be very careful about, you know, who you work with mm-hmm. and the decisions that are made, and working with good producers who are professional and and that, uh, you know, all the rules are sort of uh, being played by. Mm-hmm. You know, and
0: I was going to ask you uh, a little bit later on in this, but I'm going to ask you now because it fits a perfect segue. Um, you've obviously had a number of great successes in your career, and as with most working writers, uh, a disappointment or two <laughs> in your 20 years in the industry. How do you temper your enthusiasm and, and excitement when something great happens with the frustrations uh, when something doesn't go your way without losing your passion for writing and for the industry and for filmmaking?
1: It it never it you 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 once you think that you're in in control of your thoughts and your emotions you know they come up and they smack you upside the head Mm -hmm. you know you know you can think that uh this is you know what you have is extremely special you know and it can just be pulled out from you any time in this business so I try and stay level headed throughout. All the decision making process. As far as bad movies, um, it's heartbreaking, uh, you feel betrayed, um, and, uh, and, you know, it's, it's, it's really difficult. And like you said, you know, people on Twitter, they don't know what went into a certain situation, but they'll bash you. But that's part of the job. You know, you're, you know, you're a screenwriter. That's part of being bashed. Um, even though maybe you don't have anything to do with it at all. um, But the answer is, is that you just really need to be completely humble with every filmmaking experience. And, you know, and that's what, you know, I used to be an optimist, Kevin, you know, and lots of times with the screenwriter, you know, the, 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 uh the pissed off screenwriter, the angry screenwriter, you know, that's not, that's a cliche for a reason. It's because it's true. You know, many of us are disgruntled because, you know, uh, we don't direct it ourselves because we're too lazy. We don't want to be on set. You know, if you really want it the way you want it, you've got to direct it yourself. And if you don't direct it yourself, it's your own fault. And you have nobody else to blame but yourself. And so that's been my position for years. And the reason for that is because, you know, growing up an only child without a dad, I wanted to be a family man first. I wanted to be a dad. I wanted to spend time with my kids and not be gone. And I have achieved that. I've never missed anything in my kids. That's great. But uh, as far as my career is gone, you know, it's prevented me from directing movies, which I think that I would be a a really good director. Um, uh, But, uh, you know, I mean, getting back to the point, you know, you just handle it with, sort of uh grace and humility as much as possible i mean i'm talking a little bit of shit about directors but it's it's to to really sort of teach screenwriters to watch your ass um and uh mm. you know get in business get in business with with good people that have your interests at heart right um, and, well, I, yeah. and
0: like we talked about before we started uh recording the podcast uh the, the great thing about the podcast is stories like that, not necessarily bashing people, but showing – like the jungle, showing how the sausage is made. It's not always pretty, um, mm-hmm. but it's part of the business. So Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's – there's so many stories that I have with so many different movies, yeah. you know. I mean, I can describe them all to you in, in vivid detail you know the question is is how bad do I want to throw somebody else under the bus <laughs> um you know but um and I don't want to do that because I'm a nice person and I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings but it's imp- also important for screenwriters to understand the true you know nature of what they're getting into especially a lot of the new new people here it's a very very difficult job it's very demanding and uh and uh you, know, you get your heart broken a lot. And then at the same time, you know, you have movies like American History X that change your life. Right. And so, um, you know, but the bigger thing is, is our, uh, the one thing we always have is our love of movies. And, uh, and to, and you think the reason why is you have something to say. You got to mm-hmm. have something to say. You know, yeah. so that's a really good part of it.
0: You've written uh, a number of action, drama, and now within battle, a, a fighting film, you know, a movie about MMA. Um, writing, fighting, or action sequences, how much detail and info do you put into it, or and how much do you leave out to the director, stunt coordinator, fight choreographer, whoever it may be?
1: Well, you're walking a fine line. You know, you don't want to... I never put in camera angles or any of that right. silly... I never do POW. I've seen some screenplays where... <laughs> where they say pow for a punch in the face or something like that. I'll never do that, you know, but like with SWAT, you know, there was c- certain action sequences that, you know, like I knew we had the sixth street bridge to shoot with. And I was, hmm. we, we were a few months away from shooting. And uh, so I integrated the plane landing on the sixth street bridge um, uh, with uh you know, embattled, uh, you know, just as far as the fight sequences, you know, there's dialogue that I write in between the punching and I I learned a lot of the moves. And so I wrote these moves down and, you know, but a lot of that stuff's never followed Hmm. and a lot of the dialogue ends up being cut, you know? And, and so you just, it's almost like a, it's almost like a template, uh, uh, the action sequences and it's for the director to just kind of interpret. And then he just sort of kind of runs with it on his own. And then in the editing room, you refine it and you go, okay, I think that's kind of what I wrote, you know, but it's not entirely it, mm-hmm. but it's just, you know, with action sequences, it's, it's a template, you know? And, uh, and if there's a few ideas in there that they really like, then they make sure they get that camera shot. They get that shot in. And, um, you know, but so much of it comes together in the editing room with action sequences.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so, um, I think that's probably the best way to explain it. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, that's, I mean, as far as get Carter action sequences, I'm trying to think of all my action sequences embattled, battle SWAT. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, you even have like an action sequence in American History X, mm-hmm. you know, with the shooting and the, the curb stomping. stomping yeah. You know, I mean, that could be classified as an action sequence, I guess. Um, But even that was probably a little bit different than, um, uh, you know, what I had on the page. Um, oh, I see. You know, I mean, I think that, you know, and it could be everything from, you know, uh just the way Edward, you know, uh Edward doing the curb stomp, you know, whatever. Let's take that for example, the way he shoots the gun, you know, uh um, you know, the way uh you know every little detail. But uh for the most part it's a template.
0: Now you brought up the curb stomp. Uh since you brought it up, where did that come from? The idea for that come from and how does it feel to have written one of those scenes that like you mentioned American History X and you think Edward Norton and you think, you know, obviously, you know, the overarching themes of it. But that scene, the curb stop, it's one of those cinematic scenes that people just remember yeah. um, to have to have written that scene. What is that? Yeah. Like, do people bring it up to you all the time when they find out you wrote American Office. History X? Yeah. So wh- where where did that come from?
1: I, you know, I just I think I remember when I was a kid reading uh, about it from a gang member or something mm. in the early eighties, and I just and then from when we were shoot when I was writing the screenplay and and the situation was right there, and from there, I must have pulled it out of my brain from you know fifteen years earlier or something that was in the back of my head and i I don't think I made it up. But I don't think I stole it either. I think sure. it's maybe a combination of them or whatever. But it just fit, and um, and then you know I just you know the guy was wounded, and I just I just said what is a really really violent way right. to get this point across, and that was it. And then once I once that little percolation of an idea came across, and then I could expand on it. Mm-hmm. you know from the brother watching you know and the brother doing his paper on you know and his brother witnessing it and uh him going to jail and just everything you know i mean it's a really it's a really you know i mean it's brutal yeah it, and it's it's an iconic scene mm-hmm. you know and and i constantly get it i mean i think it's one of the most violent scenes in the history of cinema uh for that instant and uh and, but it really gets the point across of who the character is,
0: sure. and
1: and and it really adds to his overall character arc in the end. Right,
0: so, and that's the thing. That's what makes it so brutal and so effective because it's not just violence for violence' sake. Like, like you said, it illustrates his character, and it, it definitely gives you uh, a feel for who this person is. Not just I'm violent. You know, there's there's yeah. a, 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 an intense primal brutality to it. Yeah. So. No, yeah. it's,
1: no, it's, you know, obviously it's a, when you can write a scene like that, it's, you, you know, you, you're, you love it. Yeah. You know, especially when you pull it off. Um, so, but, you know, I mean, I think the whole movie as a whole, that's just one element of it. You sure. Know, it's funny, funny how everybody brings it up first, you know, you know, you're a sick fuck, Dave, et cetera. Right. But, you know, it's just the way it is.
0: Yeah. I mean, if you're talking independent film, <clears throat> you know, in terms of. Moments that are icon, you know, things that a movie is known for, whether it's, you know, Big mm-hmm. Lebowski and, and the rug that brings the room together or it's, yeah. Yeah. you know, uh, what is it, uh, uh, I'm trying to think, um, what is that film? Uh, No Country for, for Old Men, uh, with the, uh, the air gun thing. Yes. Um, you yeah. know, you know, things yeah. like that, that you just yeah. remember that is the first thing that sticks in your mind about that film. Again, it's, there's such great films. So there's a million things you can go to, but that's the one thing that first comes to your mind. Um, because you know, those are those iconic moments in cinema. So I
1: remember, I remember seeing Reservoir Dogs in the theater
0: Mm, and Buscemi, Buscemi firing
1: the gun, Buscemi firing, uh, his gun, Mm -hmm. uh, at the the
0: cops. Right.
1: And I had never seen, Oh, Gunfire like that. And that's when you know with, like, Tarantino, a true auteur, you know, somebody that has really put a lot of thought into this shot. And I thought it was just gripping. You know, it's something that I've never forgotten, the way Buscemi fires his gun in that scene. Because you hadn't seen it up to this point. Anything and there like weren't.
0: That. It wasn't like a bunch of cutaways, and you know, it wasn't you know this sort of slick. He empties the clip. Move. Yeah. You
1: no, know, he empties the clip. He shoots like seventeen rounds. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's crazy.
0: Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, but anyway, so yeah, no, there's those moments where you just remember. Yeah. And then, then he get. Th- and then he doesn't he run and get hit by a car or something like that. <laughs> is, he's running.
1: This is right after he gets hit by the car, and he's oh, right to after get he hit gets the hit. by He's trying
0: yeah. to get in
1: the car, and the cops show up, and he just starts firing. Right. You know. Yeah. Um. Now, that and that and cutting the ear
0: off. You know. Oh right. Yeah. 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 In the warehouse. Um. Yeah. Now, you, in addition to obviously your film work, you have also created your own show, Earring on NBC with uh, yeah. Bruckheimer, uh, starring mm-hmm. Benjamin Bratt and Dennis Hopper. Um. And I I read on your IMDb that you also wrote the Scarface video game, game. which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, How does the writing and and production differ between those different mediums?
1: Well, I mean, doing E-Ring, you know, Mm -hmm. that was a bitch. You know, I mean, that is 23 episodes in a year. And, uh, and uh, you know, we started off in – you know, we were on NBC and at the time NBC was a struggling network and um, we went up against Lost, American Idol, and Criminal Minds. And so it was a struggle, you know, Mm -hmm. and here you are pumping out 23 episodes and you're, you know that NBC is just trying to get the ratings up and we, we actually did fairly well, but not compared to those shows. And Mm -hmm. so it was very difficult with E-Ring, but, you know, you just gotta, you have your writer's room and you're just trying to crank out the episodes and make them as compelling as possible. And it's a lot of work. Um, uh, with, uh, with video games, that was just, that was just ridiculous as far as, uh, just how many times could I say fuck you for Tony Montana? You know, I mean, I, they literally gave me an Excel spreadsheet right. to write down all these different ways. I don't know how many I came up with, but it was pretty, uh, extensive. And that's all I can really remember. I think I wrote a few scenes, but they would just send me, you know, here's, we need it. We need some dialogue here. And I would just come up with some dialogue. It was, Mm -hmm. it was a lot of work for not a lot of money, but you know, the fact is I have my name on a Scarface, uh, um, uh, video game, the TV show. That's a lot different, um, compared to movies, you know, it's, uh, uh, um, you know, you are you're, you're relying on a lot of other writers to help you out. Um, I rewrote a lot of those scripts. Um, you have to deal with the actors. You have to deal with the editing room. You have to deal. You're casting at the same time. I mean, you're constantly, uh, you know, doing you know work, and then you're dealing with the studio Warner Brothers. You're dealing with Brookheimer, who's very very involved, and you're dealing with the network NBC, and so. You know, it's not the same as doing t- 10 episodes on Netflix where they give you, you know, some autonomy. You know, it's a very – control. network TV is a very controlling environment, and it's very difficult. I have a lot of respect for guys that do that. You know, it's really hard, you know, to get everything. then You know, and then you eventually have a machine. But And, and then E-Ring was a difficult show to produce because we did – you know, we were out in the field a lot on missions and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So – um, you know, I, to this day, I, I'm, I'm, I think we did a lot of great episodes. We did some bad episodes. Um, it was a, it was a good learning process for me. Um, but, uh, in the end, you know, we, we only did one season and that to me is, a, is, you know, it's not success. It's a failure, but you know, lots of people do it. Lots of people endure a uh, failure. And, uh, the thing is is just pick yourself back up. And get after it again. and Do the best you can.
0: Well, and a lot of shows never get to the pilot stage, or if they get to the pilot stage, you never get to the yeah. series stage, or if they get to yeah. the series stage, they go three, four, five, six episodes and are canceled and are yanked from the schedule. And you know, yeah. so you know, I mean, the fact that you got a, a show on the air to me is is a huge accomplishment. Yeah, you can't once it's on the air, you been can't been you can't control necessarily how the it schedule or the, you know, the, the marketing budget, you can't control all that kind of stuff, but.
1: Well, our lead in was Martha, which got, I think a Martha Stewart show, which I think got a oh. four share, oh, you know, nice. for NBC. Meanwhile, criminal minds lead in was CSI, which got a 27 share, sure. you know? Okay. So, um you know, uh, so much of TV is luck.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: much of movies is luck you know, yeah. and, and, uh, just the overall, uh, the stars being aligned, you know, right. it, it, it's very, very true. Right. You know.
0: Yeah. Um, so going back to, uh, some of the things you've written, um, you had mentioned that, uh, American history acts was your fourth script you had written, mm-hmm. um, whatever happened to the first three scripts you had written, uh, where are they right now? And what do you think it was about the f- American history X that that you learned from your first three scripts that weren't in the first three scripts? Obviously they're very different. I'm, I'm assuming they're different there. Um, but what was it about American history X that you think sort of pushed you over that goal line? And was it something you had learned, obviously, from your first three scripts? What are some of those lessons that you would learn? You know, because the more you write, the better you get, period, as a mm-hmm. writer. Yeah.
1: yeah. It's a great question. Um, I think that, well, my other screenplays were, one was a murder mystery on a college campus,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, which I still think, which I still would love to set up. Um, I, I think that a whodunits are, are really big, especially with the young audience today, and I mm-hmm. think that they love seeing those. Um another one is a football script that I'm still trying to that I would love to direct someday high mm-hmm. school football and then the other one is that rape thing with uh, the male perspective which I oh, mentioned okay. earlier
0: yeah um,
1: uh, writing American history edge you know with i think that with the flashbacks, I think it was a character that was extremely unique. um I think that you know the device of you know the brother being assigned a paper and having to and him mm-hmm. kind of narrowing it throughout. And then I also think that, you know, the big aspect was the character arc and, mm. and, you know, uh, um, Derek, you know, going from, you know, telling two stories at the same time. One is he's being released from prison and you don't know exactly what he's up to. And then he, and then we see flashbacks of what he used to be like through the brother and I think, and I think that the bonding relationship between the two brothers is something that, you know, people love to see. Um, and then, uh, you know, just the notion of a really intelligent skinhead, I thought was, uh, a really great character. And strangely enough, Kevin, we had a really difficult time casting that part. You know, lots mm-hmm. of passes, lots of passes. And then finally, uh, uh, one of the producers on it, John Morrissey comes up to me and he says, Uh, he calls me and he says, uh, David, Edward Norton wants to play Derek. And I said, who's Edward Norton? And, uh, he goes, go see, uh, um, uh, um, Primal Fear. Mm. And Primal Fear was out at the time. And I went to go see Primal Fear and I go, wow. I go, but this guy's, this guy's really skinny. (laughs) (laughs) Derek is a, Derek is a monster. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we met with Edward and Edward, he still was skinny, but you know, he was very intelligent. He understood the part and he said he would put on 25 pounds of muscle. And we said, yeah, go for it. But getting back to, um, this light just went off. Um, getting back to, um, uh, you know, wh- how I improved, you know, I mean, you just, you're always writing and you're always improving and you're always rewriting stuff. And I think that once you get going towards a goal, you know, of uh, achieving something and knowing you're near something that's really great um, and listening to your listening to people, um, you know, you just keep, you just keep at it and you improve, you know? And uh, I think that's what what happened with American History X. I think that i had grown a lot as a writer by then Um, You know, I look back at some of those drafts I'd built when I was 22, and it's funny. You know, they're terrible. You know, it's really hard to become a good writer when you're that young. It's very rare to sell a screenplay before you're 24 or 25, because your brain, writing a screenplay is a very meticulous type science, and your brain hasn't really learned how to, because so much of screenwriting is what not to write. And, you know, you can always see a novice screenwriter when in their prose, they're just basically telling us everything Mm -hmm. and um and one of the greatest scripts i ever read was the good shepherd by eric roth and i ended up i I ended up developing a, a movie one time with his wife and so i became friends with eric and i have huge amount of respect for eric but the good shepherd i mean you're when you read that you're trying to figure stuff out the whole time you know, and he doesn't hit you over the head with all the details and how you're supposed to feel or think and all that. And I think that's a true sign of a brilliant screenwriter. He trusts the reader to Mm -hmm. figure stuff out, you know, and I think that it's important for novice screenwriters to trust readers more and not hit us over the head with the details.
0: Do you find that that's something that differs between writing film and writing network, specifically network television? in terms of how much information that you sort of hit your audience over the head with or lack thereof and, and trust your audience to follow along in film.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that it's a total different ball game with film and TV. Um, one of one, uh, one, somebody at Warner brothers, I was, I would say DOD and hearing ring cause it's a military show mm-hmm. and she goes, can we just say department of defense, mm-hmm. you know, and
0: <laughs> right. you
1: know, I want Macker, you know, because the DOD dialogue is great. I mean, right. they used to say DOD in West Wing. Right. Um, but yeah, you need to spell stuff out for uh, people in network television, whereas you don't need to do so much in, in movies.
0: Mm-hmm. But and if I, people
1: don't understand something in movies, then you've got to clarify it for sure.
0: Oh, sure. No, absolutely. Absolutely. It just seems like with film, you just you trust your audience more. Maybe because you have two hours, you invested more in. That or And you're isolated to the theater or you're watching just that, whereas in TV a lot of times it's, yeah, you know, commercial breaks and people are coming right. and going, you know, so you yeah. have to spell things out more. I don't know what that is, but. um,
1: No, there's a big difference. Yeah. I haven't done a show yet for uh, cable or for streaming. Sure. So. I don't know. I don't have the answer for that
0: one yet. Right. But I assume
1: it's more like movies.
0: Yeah. No, I, I think it is from all the people that I've spoken to and the experiences yeah. that I've had. Yeah, it's very much more so because they don't – a lot of them don't have commercials or, you know, they're just given a little more leeway as, as filmmakers and writers.
1: Right. Yeah, with with network TV, you always got to come out with this big out, you know, mm-hmm. commercial yeah. break out. Right, you right, know?
0: right, right. Act out, yeah.
1: It's, it's silliness. Right.
0: It really Because otherwise, what what's to make people want to come back and see the next, after the commercial break? Well, I don't know, the story, the characters, I don't know, any number of those things. But yeah, no, I got you. And I I wanted to touch base on one other thing, because with films like SWAT, you know, dealing with uh, law enforcement or American History X, dealing with, you know, white supremacy or with embattled with, you know, dealing with MMA, how much research do you do? for these or or do you follow that your passions like you've not white supremacy obviously but you know like things that you've studied on on your own or is it something like this is a great story but it deals with white supremacy i'm going to dive into this and and do a ton of research what comes first the the horse or the carriage and how much research do you actually put into something like mma when you're writing a script like embattled well, that's a good question.
1: There's two different, I mean, that's two different strategies going on there. With American History X, I first wrote the script first on what I knew, and then I did, and then I met with skinheads and got right. more research and refined the characters from there. With SWAT, um, I got to know the officer. I had some ideas that I wanted to do. I came in, I was like the eighth writer on SWAT. Yeah. I mean, that they developed that movie for years with, with uh, Schwarzenegger. And then Sam Jackson signed on. And so that changed everything. Um, so uh, um, with SWAT, I got to know, that we had a technical advisor named uh, um, Randy Walker. And Randy Walker was a SWAT cop for 16 years. And so I picked Randy's brain, you know, mm-hmm. about all these different ideas. Um, and I stole a lot from Randy and he was great. Um, so, and then, so Randy really sort of helped me write, the SWAT stuff to be more authentic, and then, but with uh, with uh, um, American history, the the research was more of an afterthought to just sharpen things up a mm. little, little bit more and make right. it more accurate,
0: Give it a like little authenticity. Like
1: I, like I was, I remember being at uh, a part uh, one of these skinhead parties, and uh, that Tony brought me to, the director, mm-hmm. and it wasn't really a party; it was just like six guys and a couple girls drinking beers, and I saw a guy with. Uh, an M16 on the side of his head. And I go, okay, well, Jesus, that's really, really good. And I gave that to one of the characters in prison, the, mm-hmm. the lead, the lead bad guy in the prison. Um, and just stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, so it was, uh, um, you know, it, uh, you're just pick, you know, you're just picking and choosing. You're always making stuff better. You know, back then I was always writing stuff on, on cocktail napkins, little details, cause it's the little things that make a script better. Right. Um, with um nowadays I just I have my quick voice on my iPhone, you know, and I but I'm all you'll forget it if you don't if you don't take care of it at the moment, you know. Mm-hmm. So you, whenever you come up with that idea, you gotta say that idea into your iPhone on the quick voice and recordings and then listen to it afterwards. It might be shit, it might be good, it might be helping the script, but either way you've got to say that idea. You gotta write that idea down when you have it, because if you don't, you're gonna miss out on stuff. That's a huge thing with writing screen clips. Right. You know, because it's the little things that make stuff great. You right. know?
0: And it's funny how you mentioned that. And you mentioned Platoon earlier on, because for me that was one of the films that I'd seen I was probably too young to watch it, but I did anyway. <laughs> I yeah. was allowed to watch it. And I I was entranced with that film and I'd seen it a number of times uh on video on, on VHS. And then there came like a wave of Vietnam War movies after that with uh, um, Full Metal Jacket and (laughs) Hamburger (laughs) Hamburger Hill and a bunch of other films. And as great as Full Metal Jacket was, uh, and it was a great film, um, a lot of them came afterwards. They felt like they were just kind of tacked on. And there was an authenticity because I had read – I went on to read, I don't know, maybe 20 books about the Vietnam War – and there's a specific authenticity to platoon that you don't see in most of those other films or any of those other films, really. And I think it's because, which I learned, uh, Oliver Stone was actually in the Vietnam war. He fought there. So yeah. Everything from the writing to the side of soldiers' helmets to the way they carry themselves and the way they looked and talked. It was like you were there. It felt like a documentary almost. And it, you know, in mm-hmm. some ways it may have been his part of, you know, elements of, of his experience, And that's what I think what we're talking about here is the authenticity, the flavor and the color, the story is yours, but a lot of the little details that come from the research that you're doing.
1: Yeah. I mean, writing what you know, it's not, you know, once again, it's not a cliche, you know, it helps if you write what you know, it makes it more authentic.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, And uh, you know, that's why, Uh, You know, I wrote a football script. I played football. Mm. Um, uh, uh, I never did MMA. Um, I never had a brother, but I have. uh, uh, I have. I have two sons, Mm -hmm. and uh, for embattled, telling, uh, uh, watching that dynamic dynamic between my two sons transfers over to my two boys in the movie. You know, so I mean, and it only adds to the authenticity as compared to if you don't have any children at all. Oh, sure. And so, um, yeah, I mean, those are huge advantages that you got to take that you got to take and you got to make, uh, great. And you got to insert into your movies, you know, Mm -hmm. because people will love that. Um, but yeah, you know, uh, um, and I remember seeing platoon in the theater, you know, uh, I, I snuck into it and, uh, you know, I just thought it was remarkable. And, uh, I'm a big Apocalypse Now guy. I'm a big Robert Duvall fan, you know, from mm-hmm. Apocalypse. I do a great, uh, Robert Duvall imitation. Um,
0: but. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, you can't say that <laughs> and not do it.
1: What do you know about surfing? Major? You're from goddamn New Jersey. You know I mean? Just that, that's a terrible <laughs> version, but, um, um, you Charlie know, don't um, surf. What, right. I, I, I do it better when I'm drunk. um, <laughs> um but, uh, you know, I mean, uh, you know, and and so, and then that goes back to the great Santini, and that goes back to the Cash Boykins, the father son story. You know, when when he loses the one on one in basketball in the great Santini, and he's he's bouncing the the ball off the back of his son's head, wanting to do a rematch. Um, you know, cry baby, cry. You know, one two three, cry. You know, I mean, that's powerful shit. Mm-hmm. and between father and sons. And that's one thing that I wanted to capture with the battle, you know, so I saw an opportunity there with that. And I think we did that. I think we pulled
0: that off pretty strongly as well. Mm-hmm. Um, we're... I think I answered your question. I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, we we like to sort of bring it all together. Um, we're all stuck at home, sort of. People are less quarantining now, I think, than they were at the beginning. But we're all sort of stuck at home, especially mm-hmm. now that there's new – quarantine measures in los angeles yeah. um maybe less so in orange county a little bit but it's close it's yeah close. but across the country things are are uh, sort of taking a turn for the worse unfortunately um what are some things that you're reading watching playing or listening to nowadays like what is something that you've really enjoyed um watching reading playing or listening to of late that you can recommend
1: well i like i've been catching up on I like showing my kids um, the real movies of what used to go on mm-hmm. um, as compared to, I mean, they're just so inundated with the Avengers and all that bullshit, you right. know, and I just can't, I can't stand it. They just become stupid afterwards. And so I show them, you know, whether it be a It. I, I like showing them the jagged edge. Mm. Um, I want to show them uh presumed innocent. I want to show them one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Um, they're a little bit young for Chinatown.
0: Hmm.
1: Um, uh, my oldest now is 19, and so I'm trying to show him, you know, Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction and The Godfather, mm-hmm. you know. So really kind of uh, getting my oldest son and my daughters into it too. Um, Colin he, Colin doesn't like movies that much, you know. He'd rather play on his phone and all mm-hmm. that. Um, but getting them, you know, acclimated with what great movies used to be. And it's a shame, you know, I think that we're going to look back on our generate. This is why I still do what I do. You know, I'm not, I'm not in the Marvel world, you know, Mm -hmm. and I have a feeling that we're going to regret, you know, our legacy of the fact that we haven't maybe, and maybe the COVID is the answer. Maybe we'll stop doing $200 million movies every time out. Maybe we'll get back to doing 30 to $40 million, and maybe we'll take a little bit less of a hit on, you know, on the 2 billion. Granted, right. I get it. I get it. I get it. You know, if you're, if you're a studio and you're owned by conglomerate, it's much more advantageous to, to make a $200 million movie that makes you 2 billion. I get it. But it certainly would be nice for some of these studios every once in a while to make a smaller move to make, put on their, you know, invest a hundred million dollars in smaller films. Kind of like what they used to do with some of those smaller entities like Fox Searchlight or mm-hmm. Paramount Vantage or whatever. And, um, and just, you know, have those. So we are leaving a, a legacy to our kids. Um, so we are, so we, they do understand other, other things other than Wonder Woman and the Avengers and Ant-Man. Um, you know, it's, it's just, it's sad. And it's upsetting to me that, um you know, these kids come out of the theaters and they're numb and they don't feel anything the next day. You know, I've, I've seen those movies. There's nothing to talk about, you know, there's nothing to talk about at a coffee shop afterwards. Mm-hmm. You know, you're just bombarded with special effects. And so I try, so the biggest point is, is that, you know, during this COVID crisis, I'm trying to get my kids, we, we're watching movies to see the power of movies and to show them some of these older movies that are just fantastic, you know? And, uh, and uh, I would love for us to get back to them. And maybe COVID is the answer. Maybe they won't be making $200 million movies as much anymore because they can't make their money back. Mm-hmm. Maybe they'll, maybe they'll start making, you know, more $50 million movies that make a couple hundred million. I doubt it, but that's my dream.
0: Mm-hmm. It seems like a lot of smaller films um, are moving online, uh, you know, to the Netflixes there as they start to have to build their library because you have Fox and you have uh, Universal and you have all these different studios creating their own um, uh, online streaming platforms. Yeah, right. You know, you have the yes. CBS All Access and you have the Disney Pluses of the world and the HBOs for the Warner stuff that places like Netflix and Amazon Prime that don't have or haven't in the past, really, they don't have that that library that they've borrowed that library from, you know, bought, I should say, rented the library from other studios. The historical libraries now have to sort of find their own and make their own content, which they've been doing, obviously. They spend billions making content. But, Mm -hmm. I mean, that may be part of the future as well is, you know, making a $30 million film for Netflix, for Amazon Prime, as opposed to a theatrical release or a theatrical, small, very limited small theatrical release for, you know, award season, things like that. Um, yeah. you know, I, don't I know.
1: I, yeah. I mean, like I have this script out there that I'm taking out called, uh, Cabo and it's sort of a, it's kind of like a taken, you know, mm. um, but it doesn't have all the action of, uh, something that uh, extraction, which is on Netflix mm-hmm. and, um, because it has more character stuff. Um, and so, I have a feeling that i'm going to be getting that note of they need more action, well, you don't necessarily need more mm. action it's not the action people are numb to action you know I think they want a lot of people want more emotional stuff between characters i mean that's what really sort of drives them i think to the to the unless you are talking closer're talking about you know the those the Avengers stuff like that you know I mean there's still some character stuff that goes on in those i don't I don't want to completely hammer those movies. Mm-hmm. But you know there is something special to uh the twenty to thirty million dollar movie. We should be able to still make those mm. with you know they decry all the marketing costs. Well, you don't need all the mark- you need to get creative mm-hmm. you know and, and a movie should not it not should be two million or two hundred million I and mean, we got lucky with them battle at ten million mm. you know um but uh you know we need to get back to. You know, the seventies and the eighties, even the nineties and just, and, and kind of maybe COVID, the executives will rethink, Hey, we need to start making some of these movies again. And, uh, and it'll lessen their risk for the theater, you know, but I don't know when people are going to be coming back to the theater. You know, hopefully they come back soon and, and all this stuff goes away and I could be wrong, but, uh, you know, and, Plus with Netflix and with with you know, I, I just don't think that a whole lot of people have have a desire to go back to the theaters, and it could sort of really kill uh, these big giant plans of the studios
0: mm-hmm. yeah I mean well, how do you
1: feel about that? How do you feel about that?
0: Yeah, I mean I, I think the trend for big theater I mean obviously movie theaters aren't going anywhere permanently. As a whole because it's an event it's it's a night out but yeah. I know movie theaters make their money off of concessions and um, it's this is another thing we spoke about in the last the Thanksgiving podcast the, the the group discussion that like I spoke to a general manager of a theater an AMC that had one of those dine in theaters you know instead of a three hundred seat auditorium there were like sixty seats and there were those recliners and they have uh uh you know, waiters or waitresses come in, you order your food at your seat, they bring you your food, they bring you your beverage, you know, they have a bar and, you know, that you can order drinks from. And I spoke to him and he's like, we make a lot more money with 60 seats because they don't make much, much money from the actual ticket sales. And we make more money from alcohol than we do from ticket sales. Yeah. (laughs) So for the theaters, it makes more sense to have fewer seats and, a more uh, expensive, but premium, I think they call it, uh, uh, experience for their patrons. Whereas for a studio, it's just about getting the bodies in. For the first yeah. week or two, you get 90% of the box office. It goes straight to the studio. And then yeah. obviously, depending on what it is, an Avengers may get 90% for five weeks, whereas something smaller uh, gets 90% the first week, and then it goes down progressively from there every week. Yeah. So for them, it's just about bodies and seats. So there's going to be that sort of discussion on, Percentages and is it worth for uh, theaters to stay open if they have to put in 300 seats and they're getting 10 percent of box office and then whatever they can scrape together from popcorn sales, which is yeah. why popcorn's nine dollars. Uh, <laughs> versus, okay, we can put in 60 seats and every couple's now spending 50 to 60 dollars on a meal and, and drinks and everything, but the studio's only making 90 uh, percent of 60 yeah. seats as opposed to 300 seats is it still makes sense to make $200 million movies if they're not getting, you know, so it's going to be interesting to see how that sort of pans out. And I don't know what that no. is. And then again, a lot, especially during COVID uh, people might be getting more accustomed in, to staying at home. And with cheap TVs, you can get a well, 65 that, inch TV the for 300 deal. bucks. Yeah, you know? that's the deal.
1: yeah. That's the deal. And if that's the case, then they're, they're not going to be able to make the $200 million movie
0: anymore. It's going to be, yeah, you know?
1: but we'll see. It's going to be interesting in the next couple of years.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we'll. we'll but I would.
1: But my point, my point is, is yeah. that just you know, it would be nice to leave some sort of a, a legacy that we could be proud of. of and
0: them. I th- and I think you're right about. I don't know if it's just the era or because films have become so box office driven and such, and they've always been box office. Or I should change that. But they've become very uh, tentpole driven. Like you need the mm-hmm. Avengers. You need an IP. You need something huge to draw an audiences. Maybe it 's switched because now television has a lot of those uh heartfelt heartfelt moments and 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 like writing a comedy uh getting notes saying that it 's really funny but it needs more heart and I realize a lot of the most successful comedies now, things like Shit's Creek or things like ted lasso they 're not just funny but they have really great character development and they 're really about these characters and the, the comedies in addition to that and they have all, a lot of heartfelt, dramatic moments, which you saw to some degree in in comedies of the past, whether it was Roseanne or I Love Lucy or whatever. But it was still secondary to the comedy. Like they w- they would introduce them at certain, like this is the episode about drugs or this is the episode about death or whatever it happens to be. But generally speaking, it was a family comedy. Whereas I think nowadays the stories revolve around these characters and and their emotions and. And it's, it's very different. And I think maybe that is happening because of a public desire to have this, but because they can't go to the theaters and see that because there's so few, uh, independent films, so few smaller budget films that have that, the emotion, the raw emotion, the feelings and, and, and the dramatic aspects. You just have these big action films and, uh, and these huge IPs. Right. Uh, they have to get it from somewhere and it's, it's falling to TV. Maybe, I don't know. That's,
1: you know, and that's, and that's a great point. I mean, I think you make sense with what you're saying there. I mean, that's one of the things that I'm proud of with the battled is for all the people that um, have watched it. Um, you know, it's, it's a, it's very, it's not what they expected. And it's a very, it's very moving, you know, the relationships with, um, the brothers and and the mom, you know, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Reeser is freaking amazing you know, as the mom and, and Darren Mann in my movie is, is, is incredible. So there, you know, and dealing with Steven, you know, is, so there's lots of emotions going on and you just kind of miss that, mm-hmm. you know? And, and uh I think that, you know, hopefully we can reevaluate that, you know, with the movie business wow. and hopefully we can get these specialty studios back and, you know, get, get some of these movies made by the studios, right? Um, they might not make the same amount of money. You could still do the Avengers. You can still do those things, but you know, let's, let's, let's have some movies that, you know, are, uh, are heartfelt, you know? Right. And, and so we'll see, I'm probably wrong. I know I'm just a dreamer. You know, I'm sure all the executives at the studios are going to be laughing their ass off at what I'm saying, but there is such thing as a legacy. And is this, you know, is this what these people dreamed of when they were kids, when they were getting into the business, just making Avenger, making one Avenger after another, you know? No. There's no way. They dreamed of Chinatown and they dreamed of, uh, The Godfather and, and, you know, uh, Pulp Fiction. And, uh, and right now, none of those movies would get made. And uh, and so, uh, you know, hopefully people will take a, a little bit of a look in the mirror. I'm not t- talking about a long look, just a little look, and then maybe they can get behind some of these movies.
0: Well, and it's clear that that there's the demand for that that, that people still want that. Again, you can see it in television. What shows are popular, and, and the thing that people are talking about are. Again, shows like, uh, Schitt's Creek, shows like Ted Lasso, shows like, uh, Fargo, no, would, you know, so the demand is there. It's just not being made in film nowadays, which, yeah. it, but I mean, but that shows that the demand is there. You know what I mean? Yeah. That, you know, uh, you, you mentioned Eric Roth, uh, Force Gump wasn't successful because of all the different time periods and, and the comedic moments. It was, it made so much money. and Became this cultural icon because of those heartfelt moments, because yeah. of of the emotion involved in it, because it was real, not because oh, I can CGI you know uh, Lyndon Johnson or whatever <laughs> Nixon into uh, a film, a scene with Tom Hanks, but you know be because of of we wanted, we rooted for for Forrest Gump and you know all the emotional moments with Lieutenant. D- I mean, that was why it was successful. It didn't need those. CGI moments that had a few. Right. But that's, that's the kind of thing I think that's missing now. You know what I mean?
1: Absolutely. 100%. I mean, you're hitting the nail right on the head right there. And,
0: and our kids are being cheated because of it. It's not good. Yeah. Um, so lastly, what's one bit of life advice that's been passed on to you? Maybe that you've passed on to your kids that you found helpful in your life and career?
1: Um, well, you know, growing up with a, growing up without a dad, it hurts you. And, um, you know, you, you miss out on a lot of stuff. I remember in The Natural, the movie with Redford, Mm -hmm. um, Glenn Close has the kid, you know, has the son that Robert Redford's the father, but he doesn't know he's the father. And, and she goes, I think he's getting ready to he's about ready to meet his dad and, and, and Robert Redford's character goes, yeah, a father makes all the difference. And, um, and so I've always tried to kind of improve on that level and it's, and it was diff it's difficult. And so, um, you know, as far as life lessons are, are concerned, concern is just, you know, putting other people before yourself um, you know, I have I'm the opposite of being selfish. You know, I mean, whatever I mean, I love spoiling my kids at this but at the same time, you know, teaching them responsibility and being strict and loving them at the same time. But uh I mean, working hard, listening, uh, wanting to improve yourself um as a dad, as a husband, um, you know, as a person and uh those are the those are the life lessons that uh um, you know i've come to learn over the years you know you don't you know i remember back when i was starting off as a young screenwriter i was extremely selfish mm. before having kids you know i thought that the the world sort of revolved around me i had so much success at so young and uh you learn you know the hard way that that's not how life works And, uh, and so I guess the answer to your question is, is that, um, if you can sort of, uh, take a lot of that information came from my wife. (laughs) And I'm sure you're getting some of that as well. Right. Yeah. Um, but if you could be so self-deprecating and humble that you, you know, you will, you, you want to improve as a person and you're willing to listen, um, I think that uh, you'll be better off in the long run. I think that's one thing that I've learned over my career from a personal standpoint um, of how to handle situations and how to handle, you know, uh, um, you know, having success and learning from it and realizing, man, it's fleeting, yeah. you know, it's fleeting. I, I didn't have a movie for a long time. This is my first movie in a long time. And uh, I've been working, but I Mm -hmm. haven't had anything made, you know, and it's, it's humbling. Yeah. And, and, but it's good. It's a good thing. You Mm -hmm. know, it's, it's, it. it, it, you know, the cliche, you know, once again, what doesn't kill you only makes you stronger, you know, and that, that's both professionally and personally. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, um, you know, those are the little bit of life lessons, you know, put other people before yourself. Yeah. It's real simple.
0: Yeah. No, I mean that's great. Yeah, that's great. Um, thank you for coming on the show and chatting with us today, David. I really appreciate it. Yeah, that has been great. It's um, been great. And you can stick around for a few more minutes to answer a few more questions sure. on the after show on Patreon. Sure, and,
1: and get and you need to see the movie, buddy. The movie's great.
0: Yeah. You know? No, I, I, you. Know, as we were talking about before, when you have a brand new puppy that we got two weeks ago, yeah. and a, a seven-year-old that you're homeschooling because right. of COVID. I um, got it. Yeah, so, but I mean, I saw the trailer and it looks fantastic. So definitely, if if you're watching, I'm gonna check it out. I found it on um, Amazon, so I'm gonna watch it on Amazon. It's also on Apple TV. Okay.
1: It's also on Vudu. Okay. And on iTunes.
0: Okay. The one that I use. It's all over. Yeah, yeah. So check it out wherever you can check it out because it is. And I know it is on in from IFC, unlimited release in theaters. But I know with COVID, it's all weird and wacky, and I know you know it's 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 one of those things.
1: But you know the the you know really great feedback so far. Yeah, I the think Times well,
0: review was glowing. That you yeah, know and you right. were able to to bring in uh, su- such great adrenaline pumping action and really heartfelt dramatic moments, and the characters felt real. And so no, I it, mean, it, and the trailer looks fantastic. So you it, at the beginning it looks kind of flashy, like one of those you know movies. It's like oh, these two fighters, like a Rocky kind of thing. Um, which is not bad necessarily, but then you have a lot of the, you know, the, the Friday Night Lights kind of emotional uh, family moments and, and, and struggle and and conflict. The casting,
1: the casting's insane. You know, yeah. Stephen Steven and Darren and Elizabeth and Carucci and my son Colin and Donald Faison's amazing. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, I mean, just the casting and the act, the acting is, you know, I mean, yes, Edward Gordon and Edward Furlong were amazing in American History i I'll mm-hmm. never detract from that. But this is by far, to me, this cast, uh, collectively, it's the best acting I've ever had in any movie.
0: No, that's great. You know, they that's really, right.
1: they really got the characters off the page and Nick, uh, our director directed them you know, with, you know, a steady hand. So it's, uh, it's, I'm very proud of this movie. Mm-hmm. I really
0: am. No, that's great. Yeah, I'm definitely. Go going to see it. it. Yeah. yeah, embattled, from IFC Films, limited release now in theaters on digital and video on demand. Like you said, uh, Apple TV Plus or Apple—I don't even know what it's called nowadays. Um, Amazon Vudu, Apple uh, TV. I think just Apple. You could find Apple it on TV. Apple TV
1: yeah. Amazon Prime, Vudu, all those services. All those. You know,
0: could yeah. find them. Um, and you have an Instagram. I heard that you got signed up for Instagram David by...
1: McKenna, screenwriter I think it is I do okay. need, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to learn from my kids how to post today
0: Okay yeah. so. <laughs> Alright, so we'll have a link to that below um, uh, and uh, if you have questions about the craft or business of writing you can send us an email to ask at com or send us a tweet to at scriptscribes there's no and in the middle there just at scriptscribes Thank you again David Thanks for having me Kevin, great to be on And for those of you who want to follow up and a little more with David and me, then check us out on the After Show on Patreon. And thank you all for listening.